Hello, and welcome to another episode of U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Gene. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today, we begin our long-anticipated coverage of World War II. Now, this being a U.S. history podcast, we are not going to get into too much detail on the beginnings of World War II in Europe, but we will summarize that in this podcast, and we will discuss what the U.S. policy was and how we supported the Allies in the war. So, German aggression and policy of appeasement doesn't really work out long term. The Germans expand, they finally get into Poland, they go into France, they go into the Soviet Union. Meanwhile, U.S. neutrality meant no involvement, which evolved into selling supplies to ally nations. This kept the U.S. out of the war, at least until the next episode. Now, here is our resident history expert, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. All right. So today we're going to get into the start of World War II. We've been building up to this for quite some time. Now, again, because this is a podcast geared towards U.S. history, we're not going to go too in-depth on specific battles that took place in Europe, but we're going to talk about it in a very general sense because we have to talk about what's going on, why the United States isn't involved, but how we were indirectly involved. To start off, we have to talk about the policy of appeasement. Appeasement as a diplomatic policy involved making certain concessions to authoritarian powers in order to circumvent conflict. It was primarily a strategy employed by Great Britain and France in their interactions with Nazi Germany throughout the 1930s. The concept of appeasement was rooted in the tragic aftermath of World War I and a strong will to prevent another war. The leaders of Great Britain and France, they reasoned that by giving into Hitler's demands, they could satisfy his territorial cravings and maintain peace in Europe. Recognizing the Western powers' reluctance to engage in conflict, he pushed his demands progressively, using the policy, you know, almost as a shield against immediate military retaliation. He knows they don't want a war. He knows they're willing to to give in to certain things, and he keeps pushing the envelope, taking little by little by little by little. There is also an undercurrent of belief among some political circles that the Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I, had been unnecessarily harsh on Germany. So they perceived Hitler's early demands somewhat justifiable in a way to kind of correct those past wrongs, further motivating their policy of appeasement. The objective by appeasing him was to integrate this resurgent Germany, this Germany that had built itself back up, back into the community of nations and have them be a responsible partner rather than pushing Germany into a corner where it might lash out violently. Hitler utilized appeasement to his advantage. He steadily captured lands across the European continent. His first bold move was the militarization of the Rhineland in 1936, which was a blatant violation of the Treaty of Versailles. For those of you who are unsure of what the Rhineland is, it's a territory that, of course, today is in Western Germany, but it's a territory along the Rhine River. 
The territory borders countries like Luxembourg, Belgium, the Netherlands. And so he went unopposed and Hitler continued his expansion with the annexation of Austria during the Anschluss of 1938, followed by the annexation of the Sudetenland from Czechoslovakia in the same year. All these actions are carried out with very little resistance due to the policy of appeasement. In 1938, the Munich Agreement became a defining example of the failing of the policy of appeasement. With the intention of maintaining peace, Great Britain and France yielded to Hitler's demands and they allowed for the annexation of the Sudetenland. They operated under the assurance that this would be Hitler's final territorial expansion in Europe. And British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain hailed this compromise as being a triumph for peace. However, Chamberlain's optimism was short-lived. Far from being satisfied with the Sudetenland, Hitler proceeded to seize the rest of Czechoslovakia just months later. When Germany invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939, this was an area that both Great Britain and France had promised to protect. And days later, both Great Britain and France declared war on Germany. The war they had hoped to avoid had arrived. In the early weeks and months of World War II, it's often referred to as a phony war. So there's not much action for Great Britain and France within the first eight months of their involvement. Germany conducts a blitz in Poland and Great Britain and France, they're mobilizing for war. The biggest concern was the Maginot Line. The Maginot Line was a series of concrete fortifications along the eastern border of France. This is where they thought Germany was going to invade France, but Germany surprised them and attacked instead through the northern forest. Poland fell to Germany in five weeks. By June of 1940, Germany had taken control of Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and France. So Hitler is just steamrolling through these European countries, knocking them down one by one by one. The French government fled Paris, and by the end of 1940, France surrendered. France was then divided into two parts. You have Northern France, which is under Nazi control, and you have Vichy or Free France. Charles de Gaulle promised to continue to fight and free all of France from German control. Germany then sets its sights on Great Britain. After the fall of France, Hitler ordered the preparation for a plan that was known as Operation Sea Lion. Now, this operation never took place, but it was a plan. This was the name for the, for the amphibious invasion of Great Britain. The original plan was to have this invasion take place during the Battle of Britain. Hitler, before they had this amphibious invasion, wanted to achieve both air and naval superiority over the English Channel. Now, those things never happened, thank goodness. So this amphibious invasion of Great Britain never happened. Hitler hoped that Great Britain would agree to a peace compromise as Germany was not prepared for a full-scale invasion of Great Britain. And from July to August of 1940, you have Germany attacking British ports, British convoys, 
And in September of 1940, the Germans accidentally dropped bombs on London and civilian areas. The British Air Force retaliated by hitting targets in Berlin. Now, this move infuriated Hitler, and he commanded that London and other major cities to be bombed repeatedly. The city of London was attacked for 57 consecutive nights. These night raids became known as the Blitz. The bombing of London, while, of course, it was incredibly difficult on the civilian population, and there were 40,000 civilian deaths in Great Britain, it allowed the British military a chance to regroup. And it meant that while they were attacking cities and civilian areas, they weren't attacking military bases. London residents, of course, had to seek refuge. And where did they seek refuge? Many of them in the underground train stations. At some points, there could be 150,000 people sleeping in the underground. But during the Blitz, you have, I mentioned earlier, 40,000 civilian killed. And you during the Blitz, as I mentioned earlier, you have 40,000 civilians killed. And you also have 2 million homes either damaged or destroyed. So there's tremendous amounts of destruction. The king and queen of Great Britain, King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, they remained in London. And Hitler even referred to Queen Elizabeth as being the most dangerous woman in Britain due to her determination to remain in the capital. The king and queen would often tour these bombed neighborhoods throughout England. And when Buckingham Palace was bombed, she simply said, now I can look people in the east end of London in the eye because her home had been bombed as well. Italy and Germany invade the Balkans, Albania, Yugoslavia, and Greece. First, Italy invaded Greece, and they demanded that the Greeks surrender. And the leader of Greece at the time responded with a single word, Ochi, which in Greek means no. Ochi Day is still celebrated in Greece and in Greek-American communities all over the world. Last summer, I went to a privately owned museum for World War II memorabilia in Crete. There are actually a number of them on the island. The one that I went to was in a town uh, near Svakia, and the island of Crete was battered by the Germans. While the mainland surrendered, Crete continued to fight. And the museum is this section of this man's home. And his sister, what, what spurred his collection was that his sister was killed in a bombing by the Nazis. And so he has spent his life collecting World War II-related items as a way to honor his sister. But during the German occupation of Greece, there are countless stories of attacks on civilians. You have Nazi soldiers going to remote villages and massacring not only men, but even women and children. Many people had to hide in the mountains. Um, my father-in-law's brother was actually born in a cave during World War II. His family were hiding. His family was hiding. So you have these Nazi soldiers, they're going to remote villages and they're massacring not only men, but women and children. And like the other countries that Hitler and the Nazis invaded and conquered, the Jewish population of Greece, while much smaller than other European countries, were transported to killing centers like Auschwitz. 
By the end of the war, 80% of the pre-war Jewish population of Greece had been murdered. People are still finding relics from World War II in Crete. Uh, there was a story of um, a farmer not too far from where we usually are in Crete, but he was digging in the garden and he hit a landmine and he lost his hand. So things are still happening there from World War II. Where was the he, landmine? In his garden. Unbelievable, right? Deep down. They they were um, farming in a new area of his land. They hadn't. And there was a landmine. Hitler then turns his eyes to the east and he attacks the Soviet Union. And this makes the war for Hitler a two-front war. He has the Allies on the West, and now he has Stalin and the Soviets on the East. On June 22, 1941, Germany invaded the Soviet Union, and it was codenamed Operation Barbarossa. Now, this was a surprise attack for a number of reasons, mainly because the two had signed a non-aggression pact. They had agreed not to fight or attack the other. To make this a two-front war was insanity. The Eastern Front was massive. It was 1,800 miles long, and the Germans used 80%, 80% of its armed forces in order to fight the Soviets. They quickly seized control over territories like Kiev and Ukraine. Ukraine in particular was of, of great importance due to its food production capabilities and how rich in minerals it was and still is. Ukraine's territory is still coveted by Russia for those two reasons. By October of 1941, they attacked Moscow, which held both strategic and political importance. But the Soviet army had been able to build up their defenses, and German gains are not as quick. They kind of steamroll through Western Europe, but when they get to the Soviet Union, they inflict tremendous amounts of destruction, of death, but they can't absorb territories as quickly. And that was for a number of reasons, which I'll get into. By December, the Soviets had mounted a surprise counterattack, and the Germans are then forced to retreat. But that retreat would not last long. Hitler ordered yet another offensive, this time in Stalingrad, which was an industrial city as well as a transportation hub. And being located near the Volga River, this was of great importance for the Germans to gain control or gain access to. They wanted to be able to cut off access to lend-lease supplies being brought in. Now, at first, and I'm going to get into this program in a little bit, but at first, lend-lease was given to Great Britain and France. But when Hitler attacks the Soviets, even though this was not our ally, we are willing to give them supplies because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So the Germans hope to get to the Volga River and cut these very much so needed supplies from coming in. This battle was particularly bloody. It's a great example of urban warfare. It was by far one of the bloodiest battles in World War II, and it's considered a major turning point in the European theater. The city of Stalingrad was destroyed. A thousand tons of bombs were dropped in 48 hours. That's a tremendous number. Sorry. Two million, two million pounds. Yes, a thousand tons, two million pounds. So in two days. So you can imagine the death toll. 
thousands of civilians that survived were taken back to Germany and forced into slave labor. Of course, Jewish populations in every place that is being taken control over are being brought to concentration camps. Fighting rages on for months. There are unsanitary conditions. There is a lack of supplies. And the Soviet winter all made the German army's ability to advance that much harder. The Soviets declared victory and almost 100,000 Nazi soldiers were taken as prisoners of war. And within that number, you have a significant amount of generals, of Nazi generals. Estimates show that over 1 million Soviet soldiers were killed, along with 40,000 civilians. During the war, the civilian casualties in the Soviet Union are astounding. If you look at the Battle um, of Leningrad, for example, you have 800,000 civilian deaths. Most of those are actually from hunger. The Soviets, in preparation, evacuated 1.6 million civilians from that city. And if they hadn't, that death toll number would be significantly higher. The city of Leningrad had been totally cut off from necessities, from supplies, from electricity. And the total casualties throughout World War II, both militarily and civilian, was 27 million people. The impact that this war had on the human population is mind-boggling. In the early years of World War II, you have leadership changes. In Great Britain, you go through two prime ministers. You have Neville Chamberlain and Winston Churchill. Chamberlain became prime minister of Great Britain in 1937, and it was his decision to pledge to protect Poland should Germany invade, which of course they did in 1939. And Chamberlain was heavily criticized by the way he handled the war and of course for his policy of appeasement. And Winston Churchill succeeds him as prime minister and concludes the war. He's in control the entire time. Appeasement seemed like a good idea at the time, I guess, but um, you yeah. know, keep letting I mean, people get away with stuff. And I mean, I always give the example of when a baby is crying or if a child is having a temper tantrum. You know, when a baby is crying, you give them a pacifier, you try to pacify them, you appease them. You're not solving the issue. You're just holding off whatever consequence you're trying to hold off. If you have to feed the baby, change the baby, whatever needs to happen. The same thing as if, you know, your child is having a temper tantrum. If you give in, that child knows if I make a big enough stink, I'm going to get what I want. Now, so that's why I, I had a strict policy as a parent of not negotiating with terrorists. Uh, ditto. Yes. <laughs> so what's the United States doing? The United States, after World War One, follows a policy of neutrality. We very much have this mindset of what happens over there is happening over there and let it stay over there. During World War I, over 100,000 U.S. soldiers are killed. Now, this is a very small number compared to the amount of soldiers other countries lost. The United States only got involved in 1917. After the Great War ended, the United States once again turned to a policy of isolation. We did not want to get involved in another foreign conflict. 
as war raged on in Europe and throughout many other places in the world, it became increasingly more difficult not to take steps to mobilize so that the country would be prepared for war if needed, but to also provide our allies with the means of war so that we wouldn't have to use them to fight the Germans. The United States is also in the midst of the Great Depression. And we talk about the New Deal programs and as having an impact, but that war machine, people needed American-made goods. People needed crops. People needed food. People needed all sorts of supplies. And our factories went back to work and mass producing, not just for ourselves, but for the world. Prior to the outbreak of war in Europe and after the rise of a variety of totalitarian regimes in Europe, the United States passed a Neutrality Act in 1935, and this law hoped to avoid any action that might bring the United States into war. Very broad, and very broad for a reason. Some things that would be necessary under the new law was that American ships had to obtain a license in order to carry arms. It would restrict Americans from sailing on ships from hostile nations, and it would impose an embargo on the sale of arms to belligerent nations. A second Neutrality Act followed in 1937. As the situation in Europe became worse, it was, it was evident that the United States needed to aid our allies in its fight against the Nazis. And we instituted a policy known as cash and carry. Picture cash and carry of saying, hey, you want this? Pay up front in cash and take it on your own boats. We want nothing to do with it. Cash and carry was instituted in late September of 1939 as a response to the outbreak of World War II. This replaces the Neutrality Act of 1937. So cash and carry essentially means that they could buy our stuff, but we weren't going to deliver it. Right. Correct. You had to come you had to come and pick it up. Yep. That was what that's how we kept our neutrality because our ships weren't in the water. But you know, that probably lengthened the supply chain lines, right? Well, I don't necessarily know about that, but what I mean, if you think about things from World War One that brought the United States into war, if you look at things like the attack on the Lusitania, the fact that this was not a US vessel, that the Germans were practicing unrestricted submarine warfare. The Germans are once again practicing submarine warfare. And so we don't want to put ourselves in a situation where we are now attacked by a belligerent nation. And maybe to save face, whatever, we don't want to get pulled into this conflict. So we're saying, okay, we recognize the need that you need these supplies, but I need you to recognize that we are trying not to get involved in your stuff. So here's your supplies that you need. We're happy to take your money and do business with you, but you need to take it across these waters where any amount of things can happen. And God, we trust all of us pay cash. Pay cash. The neutrality acts of 1935 and 1937, they're passed as a way to prevent the United States from being pulled into another war. The thinking was that if we have trade with another country that's at war, if we provide loans, we need to now protect our investment. If that country ceases to exist, we don't get that money back or get paid for the war items. If those items are paid for in cash, in full, 
and the country in question assumes all of the risk by transporting those goods on their ships, now that's a different story. And this becomes the policy of the United States until it becomes impossible for our allies like Great Britain to pay in cash in full for what they need. So what do we do? In March of 1941, something called the Lend-Lease Act went into effect. And this program was introduced to Congress, and the names quite frankly says it all, an act to promote the defense of the United States. And under this policy, we supplied our allies like Great Britain, the Soviet Union, France, and China with food, oil, and war materials until 1945. This policy had support because it was deemed essential for the defense of the United States, provide war materials so that our soldiers wouldn't need to use them to fight the Nazis. Now, now that would also that would also allow us to kind of be prepared to go into war should we have to get pulled in because we're doing all of this production of these supplies anyway. Exactly. Now, this all changes in less than a year when Japan attacks the United States at Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. But Lend-Lease was different from cash and carry. You can lend somebody something. And if you lend somebody something, the, the idea is, hey, you need to return it when you're done. Now, boats, airplanes, what happens if they get shot down, destroyed? Many of them did. But we were lending them these items so that it was their soldiers who were fighting the Nazis and not our soldiers. We were leasing these items, pay for a little bit as you go. So they didn't they didn't adopt the policy, the Lend-Lease, but didn't include a you break it, you bought it type of thing? Well, no, planes. because we know, I know that I know. these more planes about... are going to get shot down. Yeah. But it better to have, I mean, not that any country's loss of life is any less significant, but the thinking of these are not American soldiers flying these planes, these are... British. These are yeah, that was, that was and they're defending yeah. their own territory. The United States had not yet been attacked on our soil. We will, but we hadn't yet. In total, just to give you an idea of the number behind this program, in total, about $50 billion worth of supplies went to our allies. And the items sent were to be used until returned or destroyed. Now, most equipment, as you can imagine, was destroyed. Although some materials, such as ships, were returned after the war, some were sold at a lower rate after the end of the war. Now, the United States would not be able to avoid direct involvement. The fight would be brought to us on the shores of Pearl Harbor. Now, well, it sounds like we're getting into Pearl Harbor next. Yes, that's it. That's our next one. So stay tuned. And then what do we have as a little teaser after that? We have Pearl Harbor and then what? And then we're probably going to have two to three episodes on Japanese incarceration. And then um, a lot of World War II. All World War II. We're going to be on World War II for the next couple of months. All right. It's a big we topic. Have something to look forward to. It is. Thank you for listening to U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Gene. Tell your friends about our podcast and where you learn all this great stuff about U.S. history. Follow us on social media and get onto our email list to learn about special events. They're coming up again. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.